This is an Area Code podcast. Hi, I'm Amy Simmons. And I'm Crispin Mayfield. And welcome to the Attached to the Invisible podcast. Welcome back after a long hiatus of this Attached to the Invisible podcast. It's been a long time, but I have recorded a few episodes over the past few months that I'll be releasing monthly. This is our first episode back since my book came out, Attached to God, which has been really fun to share a lot of the ideas we've played with on the podcast in written form. Today, I'm interviewing Blake Victor Kent, a professor and sociologist, and the next episode, we'll be back with me and Amy talking about attachment styles and the Enneagram. But before the interview, I wanted to mention that this September, I'm running a training for people in ministry. I'm going to teach about attachment and how you can use that in ministry to better serve the people that you care for. We'll be talking about rupture and repair, how to meet the specific needs of the different attachment styles, and recognizing how your own attachment history impacts the way you care for others. You can find registration at crispinmayfield.com. This is an online training so you can join from wherever and it will be recorded. So if you want to catch it after the fact, it will be available for download. I'm so excited about this interview with Blake Victor Kent. He's a sociologist, professor at Westmont College, and the author of several research articles about attachment. Before we jump in, I wanted to orient you to the research a little bit. We talk about correspondence hypothesis versus compensation hypothesis. This is a question about how your parents impact your attachment with God. Some research has suggested that we relate to God in the same way we relate to our parents. If we're anxious with our parents, we'll be anxious with God. If we are secure with our parents, we'll feel secure with God. That's the correspondence hypothesis, because our relationship with parents corresponds with our relationship with God. The compensation hypothesis is the idea that even if we have insecurity with our parents, we turn to God to find security, to compensate for what we didn't get in our relationship with our parents. So this is the idea that our relationship with God might be the opposite our attachment with God might be the opposite of our attachment with our parents. This is often pointed to when people grow up in an insecure environment and then come to find God later in life, feeling like you get from God what you did not get as a child. I just wanted to bring you up to speed on that part because we're going to talk about it a bit in this episode. But without further ado, my conversation with Blake Victor Kent. So generally speaking, psychology has taken this approach of our earliest relationships really frame our attachment with God. And Mm -hmm. that's what some of the research bears out. But what I really appreciate about you coming into this conversation is you're not a psychologist, you are a sociologist. And so I thought you could at least just start with kind of saying where the research has gone so far, and then we'll go on from there. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. And I'm really, really happy to be here. I've admired you from a distance and enjoyed the podcast. And, and really, I'm just as a, I'm a sociologist that studies attachment, but I'm also a believer and a seminarian and a former pastor. Um, and also someone who has struggled with some insecurity and anxiety and attachments. And so uh, in many ways, uh, as is so common with research, w- we get into areas that we have questions that are deeply compelling to ourselves and we want to 
explore them and and communicate to others. And so as you know, as a as a believer, there's so much I want to say to to pastors and to churches about um, attachment to God and and how it can operate and affect people. Oftentimes, below the surface, um, in ways that people aren't even recognizing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, to sort of address some of the early um, factors, and I know you've touched on this a little bit in in prior um, episodes with guests, but the the research that was really done by important psychologists early on like Lee Kirkpatrick and Per Gronquist uh, were really trying to understand what's the association between you know childhood relationships with the primary caretaker and how does that either correspond or sort of match up with subsequent attachment experiences particularly attachment to God though that could also be romantic partners and friendships um, there's work in like um, work supervisors and organizations and all those all those things come into play and there's there's sort of a, a concatenation among those things um, and then the question of whether or not there's some kind of possibility for compensation to occur which is sort of the classic um, you know uh, hope in sort of like the Christian tradition that that God can take sort of these broken vessels and and mend us and and bring us to security. Um, so well, yeah, talking about that compensation model, that's the idea of like this relationship with God is compensating for something I don't have elsewhere in my life, right? Absolutely, yeah. And this is as a sociologist, you know, you've got to understand that you know most of your listeners, uh, you know, maybe geared a little bit more to the psychological perspective and sort of like the the one-on-one therapeutic side of things. As a sociologist, you know, I'm working at a really high level. Um, mm-hmm. We're at we're at the thirty thousand foot level, looking at at patterns. Um, I'm you know, and I've worked on, on taking a lot of these these things that have been developed by psychologists and then applying them to large samples, like nationally representative samples with a, a whole host of controls for all kinds of covariates, anything that could explain the association um, that psychologists might not necessarily have access to in the data sets that we're, they're working with. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll get to some of that, but um, what I, what I have noted in that literature on correspondence and compensation um, which I'm trusting others. You know, I don't. I don't do work on testing that myself. But what I've seen is that there's a lot of um, correspondence evidence, especially if there's sort of a warm, caring relationship with the early caregiver. That tends to translate to a warm, caring relationship with God. There tends to be a seemingly a more consistent intergenerational transmission of religiosity when there's a warm security in childhood that transfers on. Right. Um, so there's this there's this uh, conditional transmission, right? So if you sure. put, I mean, put in kind of layman's terms, as I understand the research is, if you have a good relationship with your parents, you are more likely to continue on their religious tradition. Yes. And yes. if you don't, then you're less likely. Yes. Yeah. There's specifically research that show in like, say, anxiety, for example, um, is associated with higher rates of rejection of your parents' religiosity. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that relationship early on definitely correlates to, and these are all patterns, of course, there's always exceptions, but the pattern is that that security and insecurity matter for intergenerational transmission. Now, th- there's a good bit of evidence for that. The interesting thing to me is that uh, there's not 
as much evidence for the compensation model mm-hmm. on my understanding of the literature. And I, and I think that I want to know your perspective because you're working with um, individuals one-on-one all the time. Mm-hmm. And you probably see um, individual cases where there's a high level of compensation uh, where that occurs, but you know, you know, someone as important to this literature as as I've already mentioned, Per Gronquist, who's a psychologist, um, has basically noted that there, there's one. There's been no really thorough systematic study that shows strong evidence of the compensation hypothesis. Mm-hmm. And in, in a in a review paper that that just came out with him um, and Aaron Cherniak, um, they note that um, religious compensation may facilitate a kind of earned security, um, as they say, as an exception, uh, but not by default, you know, and that's, mm-hmm. that's right. That's right out of their study, not by default, particularly because negative internal working models, those, um, sort of socio emotional expectations that we have that, that John Bowlby talked about, that those mm-hmm. tend to linger or they tend to be fairly persistent mm-hmm. and, I can attest to that, at least from my own personal anecdotal evidence. You know, mm-hmm. I grew up evangelical of evangelicals, um, mm-hmm. surrounded by a normative security and intimacy with God. Mm-hmm. And I touched it from time to time, you know, and in, 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 in profound ways. But throughout my life, and I'm in my 40s now, I would say that a kind of um, avoidance tends to persist. Mm-hmm. And how I relate to God, and that that creates an interesting dynamic that I really want to get into as we go on in terms of what is the phenomenological experience of the person that kind of has a persistent avoidant or anxious experience mm-hmm. of God, trying to navigate religious contexts and congregations where security is idealized and normalized and and probably the bulk of the people that are at the church or in the congregation are having that kind of experience, you know, mm-hmm. but you're not. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Which is so hard when you're sitting in church and you're looking around and it feels like, Oh, everyone else looks like they're connected to God. What's wrong with me. Right. Is often yes. a feeling, but I think yes. um, around that compensation idea, there are so many different factors here in the research. So um you know, you're looking at, is this someone who grew up in the church or someone that came to the church later in life? Mm. I think that's a yes. big... Uh, yes, big and there change. is strong, the strongest evidence for the compensation model is in religious conversion. Mm-hmm. Right? That's where that's where it's been noted the most is in sudden religious and dramatic conversion. Right, yeah. And I know that Todd Hall has talked a bit about um, the idea of the, you start at that compensation and then, like you said, it lingers. So then you you move back into what feels normal. And there's this church near my house that had this sign up for a while that said, I think it kind of enca- encapsulated the message that we get sometimes. It said, uh-huh. come as you are, change inside. So mm-hmm. like at the start of your faith journey, like it doesn't, yeah, you're accepted exactly as you are. There's that security there. And then, like, over time, it's like, but you are expected to, like, there are some conditions here. And mm-hmm. that, like, conditionality, I think, can drive the anxiety or the mm-hmm. avoidance. And mm-hmm. um, so that makes a lot of sense to me that when you think about some of the really famous conversion stories, um, 
you know, those, those testimonies that we like to tell where someone was at the end of their rope and they're a terrible mm-hmm. person and they came mm-hmm. to God. Right. But mm-hmm. we rarely stay in that place in the church. It's like, Oh yeah. As, as, as you know, you can start here, right. but there is still this expectation that you become a church person on some level. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. I, I, there's a researcher that I love that, that I may refer to a couple of times in um, Tanya Lerman who's an anthropologist and her, her book that I love the most is called when God talks back, um, understanding the American evangelical relationship with God. And, uh, she, she, she basically embeds herself in like these charismatic, um, evangelical congregations for a number of years to try to understand the dynamics of what's going on there. And, and she notes that there's definitely this, this operative assumption. Um, and this is a line actually I love from, from the book. It says in evangelical churches, the operative assumption is often that you do not know how to have the intimacy that is being talked about, that you need to be taught, that you can be taught, um, and that your learning depends on uh, your leaning into scripture uh, and the Bible to sort of learn those, those dynamics. And, I know that, you know, later on, um, something related to sort of biblical literalism and how we take scripture actually keys into attachment. And and I've done a little bit of work in that area. Let me ask you this. What do you find so poignant about that quote? Well, what I find poignant about it is one is a sociologist, you know, one of the one of the variables that we use a lot that has a, a ton of explanatory power for all kinds of things, you know, political views and attitudes about sexuality and, and towards marriage and towards, you know, sort of insiders and outsiders, both within religion and within the nation is, is biblical literalism. You know, people that, that say that they take the Bible literally tend to sort of fit into a certain kind of sociocultural sort of milieu Mm-hmm. And 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 growing up evangelical, uh, the emphasis on scripture uh, was you know so so uh, elevated, you know to the point where one of my professors at Wheaton College, where I did my undergrad, you know sort of would talk about that. This is this is you know what he told me, but at Dallas Theological Seminary, you know in this you know hallmarks so of evangelical seminary, there was a bit of a joke when he was a student that that the Trinity is made up of the Father and the Son and the Holy Scriptures, mm-hmm. you know, and so just that um, that emphasis on on the Bible and, and its its applicability and importance for our lives has fascinated me in terms of how it uh, affects. Um, all kinds of social outcomes and behaviors and attitudes. So when it ties in with attachment, you know, when I started doing some research on this, I realized we know a lot about what literalism means for all kinds of predictor, you know, what it's predicting out in the social world. But we know very little about what actually predicts being a biblical literalist. Like there's almost no studies that actually say, well, what actually, you know, leads to that. And there was sort of, I think there was sort of an implicit assumption that it just was kind of about religious affiliation or denomination. Like, hey, if you grew up evangelical, that that means that you have this high view of the Bible. Mm. And if you grew up more of a mainline Protestant, yeah, you know, a little bit less um, um, dogmatic on those issues, then then you maybe were more interested in sort of like an interpretive sort of view of the Bible. Hmm. And, That's but, what I would assume. Right. But here's here's a fascinating thing that that I found in this work um, that I basically wanted to look at 
the security of one's attachment with God and, and, and its association with being a biblical literalist. And um, one, I found that there's a strong, you know, correlation or association there. Um, but two, the denominational differences that we kind of assume is a bit of a smokescreen. Um, mm-hmm. that if you break, if you break out religious groups, like evangelical mainline, Protestant, mm-hmm. black, Protestant, Catholic, Jewish, um, and you categorize them by literalism levels, you actually find that their reporting of the intimacy and security of their attachment to God is the same, regardless of what religious affiliation you're looking at. Mm. And if you, if you take the Bible as more of a text that needs to be interpreted, then your attachment level kind of drops down a little bit. And it's consistent across all the religious affiliations. Huh. And then if you see the Bible as kind of a collection of, of myths or stories, then there's another big drop down in terms of your perceived intimacy with God. And it's the same across all those religious affiliations. Mm. Now, on average, evangelicals have report like higher levels of security and intimacy with God. Mm-hmm. As, 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 as do black Protestants. But then mainline drops and Catholic drops. But that's because you have a higher proportion of biblical literalists in evangelicalism and in black Protestantism. So that's where the, that's where the, the, the average level kind of um, obfuscates what's really going on. We think, oh, they all think this way. But in reality, it's how you relate to the Bible. And, and it just depends on what proportion of people within your religious affiliation mm. relates to the Bible in that way. Mm-hmm. And you presented this around secure attachment, um, higher levels of secure attachment means higher levels of biblical literalism. Right. Why isn't it, why didn't you determine that it goes the other way? That, um, you know, believing the Bible literally and approaching it fosters secure attachment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's a, that's a really good question. And one thing we always have to be careful about in these studies is, is what is the causal ordering that we're talking about? The particular data that this study is drawn from, which is the Baylor Religion Survey, um, which was the, the very first national survey in the U.S. to actually mm-hmm. include attachment to God items. So um, this, and this is 2010 data. Um, it's, it's a single slice in time. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's not a longitudinal. I'm not predicting one at one point in time and then another at another point in time, which would allow a little bit more of a stronger causal association. So it does have to be theorized in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And and I and essentially I'm theorizing that attachment um, is more commonly going to predict literalism simply because the attachment and internal working models are established so early in life. Mm-hmm. And I think that especially if you were to grow up in, in an evangelical church and you, and you happen to be a secure attacher, um, then there would be sort of a, a, an appropriate sort of a correlation there and that they would, if they would essentially reinforce one another. So maybe not thinking about it directly from one to the other, but almost as like a little bit of a reinforcing loop, mm. but where, but where your attachment orientation is sort of like the start of, it kicks off the start of that loop, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and certainly, I think that you could um, sort of have a perspective on on the Bible as as this document that really speaks directly to a personal God 
and by the way, that's what I think matters about literalism, mm. that, that God is a person that you talk to mm. and God is a person that talks back to you, mm-hmm. that there's an intimacy of relationship. Whereas if you take the Bible a little bit less literally, mm-hmm. God may still be powerful and important. Um, you know, Bob Wuthnow, a, a great sociologist of religion, interviewed a bunch of mainline Protestants. And, and one of them described God as a, an all-powerful, universal and loving force. Mm. which is a good a good start right but then an unknowable ineffable center of everyone's spiritual core and unknowable and it's not that all mainline protestants approach things that way but mm-hmm. he he suggests that this is a little bit more um, you know representative of of uh, uh, of a mainline perspective versus an evangelical perspective which is really going to drive into that personal god mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. um so but yeah if god is 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 personal and you can talk to God that it, that that syncs up really tightly with taking the Bible literally because because the Bible presents God as a God who speaks mm-hmm. right yeah. um, but if you if you start backing away from a literal Bible then when God is talking to people maybe it's not God really having a conversation with people maybe it's people sort of intuiting things about God and then sort of recording and writing them down does that does that mm-hmm. kind of make sense oh yeah definitely and and if I thought a bit about this and wondered wondered this very thing, like those, because I have a colleague who is also another Christian therapist. I feel like in a lot of ways we're pretty similar, but our faith journeys have been different in a lot of ways as well, where I'm always mm-hmm. like questioning things. And mm-hmm. she's like, yeah, it's, you know, I she's a biblical literalist or very close to. And mm-hmm. what I think is, is that if you have a secure attachment, you can read the troubling things in scripture, hmm. but there's not a sense of like, this doesn't apply to me. Um, and maybe that's best illustrated by the opposite, which is like those of us <laughs> with an insecure attachment to God, I'll include myself in that, like growing up mm-hmm. feeling like, well, if there's a hell what's to stop me from going there? Like if there are people that God rejects or mm-hmm. um, if there's a possibility of me being separated from God, I don't mm-hmm. have enough security mm-hmm. to know that's not going to mm-hmm. be me. So then, mm-hmm. then I have to investigate those things. I have to investigate mm-hmm. those passages to know, all right. So when it talks about hell, like, you know, what are we talking about here? Cause my eternal, like, you know, fate is, is hinging on this. Whereas yeah. someone, someone that's like, Oh yeah. Like I, I kind of grow up with this idea of like, I can trust my parents. I can trust God. I'm not going to tune into those fine, like kind of the fine print as yes. much. Right. Yes. And there's more risk. There's more that. risk involved. There's more risk involved. And and that's that actually ties in with with a study that um, has has re- probably the study that I've written that has received the most attention, and I think it's because it, it keys in on this dynamic a little bit. And that what we did is the the association with prayer, for example, you know, and to put it in attachment language, you could call that a proximity seeking behavior mm-hmm. um, that we engage in prayer many times because we want to make some kind of connection with God. Mm-hmm. Um, but while a lot of aspects of religious, uh, life and experience have been associated with a lot of positive sort of well-being outcomes, whether it's, you know, lower depression or better, you know, optimism or self-esteem or life satisfaction or something, prayer has a bit of a mixed 
um, mm. relationship there. And, and in, in some other studies that I've done, I find that it's a little bit gendered okay? mm. and that, that women tend to engage with God through prayer and, and experience it as kind of a, a safe uh, thing mm. more commonly than men. And they tend to engage in prayer um, regardless of the circumstances of life. So in other words, like women are sort of maintaining the more ongoing relationship with God, whether they're doing well or whether they're struggling or experiencing mm-hmm. stress. Men, on the other hand, tend to start to engage in prayer more when they need it, when, mm-hmm. when something is really going badly mm-hmm. and they're looking for some kind of safe haven to sort of grab onto. Mm-hmm. And so, so it's gendered. And interestingly, I think that attachment plays into that, too. Mm-hmm. Um, because kids, there's not really a difference in attachment when kids are little, but you start to differentiate when mm-hmm. you're kind of in your, you know, eight, nine, 10, mm-hmm. um, and, and men sort of start moving a little bit away from security and men, women tend to sort of go there. And that's mm-hmm. as a sociologist, you know, I, I look for how that might be socialized in a certain way. Right. Yeah. Um, as a couple of therapists, I was going to say as a couple of therapists, I can attest to that anecdotally. Right. right. That that people, um, men tend to be more avoidant. Uh, women tend to be more anxious. Um, but again, I, I agree that I think that's socialized. Yeah, totally, totally. So so where this research is going is that um, there's a bit of a gender component. But when it came down to it, we wanted to explain why is this associated with prayer and well-being so mixed, recognizing that there's gender involved. But we said, but what if we throw attachment to God in there? Mm. And and what became very clear, and this is in a very strong like national sample of, of black and white Christians, um, is essentially that over time, so this is a, a longitudinal study, that over time, um, if you have a secure orientation with God, then prayer is associated with all kinds of positive mental well-being outcomes. Mm. If you have an anxious or you know avoidant relationship with God, over time, <laughs> prayer is associated <laughs> with all kinds of bad outcomes, you know? uh-huh. and it gets and it gets at that thing that you're just saying that that there's an existential threat or risk that can go into trying to negotiate communication with the divine when you don't perceive of the, the divine as necessarily um, sort of standing there with open arms to mm-hmm. em- embrace you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If God's not necessarily on my side. Not in a political way, but like, you know, God's watching out for me and it's up to me to keep this connection with God. Right. Right. Then, right. then it's, you're going to do more investigating, like, right. is, is my assumption. Right. And it feels like, you know, the, the pastoral response broadly, and, and hopefully this is changing a little bit. Um, but it's to drill down into like beliefs, you know, oh, if we could, if you just can modify your beliefs about God, mm-hmm. if you can just embrace that God loves you, mm-hmm. um, if you just sort of read your Bible more, mm-hmm. well, well, what if reading the Bible doesn't bring the same kind of comfort for me as it does for you? <laughs> uh-huh. you know, then you'll be able to sort of handle and, and navigate all these problems and, and come to a place where you accept these things. Um, you know, just the other day um, here at Westmont College, where I teach, we had a, a, a chapel speaker, uh, someone I, I respect, and did a great message, but is sort of drilling down into sort of Tim Keller's, you know, approach to the prodigal son, where really the two sons are kind of similar and that they're they're looking for something from God. Um, and, and in the end, 
um, you know, the, the older son is, is, is trying to get something from God, but rather than sort of coming to the end of his rope, he's sort of doing the right thing and following the rules and working hard. And so he's supposed to get his reward. Um, mm -hmm. but, but, but the, you know, the takeaway is that it's, it's about being with God and not sort of earning God's love. Um, and, and I think that's, that's all good, you know, mm -hmm. uh, but as someone that looks at attachment to God, you know, I want to raise my hand in the back and say, don't stop there, uh -huh. you know, because just being with God is a lot harder for some people than others based on their, their sort of attachment experiences. And fundamentally what people need to know and understand deeply is it's not, it's not your fault. You know, mm -hmm. it's not you, you didn't. Uh, you know, decide how you are going to have, you know, this experience of attachment. It's mm -hmm. something that, that was established so early in your life that you didn't have control over it. Now that doesn't mean you can't work towards sort of earned security over time. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but if, if we don't even have the language within the church to recognize that these kind of attachment dynamics are going on and are, are difficult uh, to navigate, then we're sort of missing a, a little bit of a piece of the picture. Mm -hmm. And it, it's not like pastors are like totally unaware that the spiritual life is harder for some people than others. Right? Mm -hmm. But, but it doesn't seem like there's a widespread sort of understanding of, of the attachment system, um, which is one of the most like powerful and demonstrated systems in, in psychology, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but right. Even, even, even as widespread and sort of demonstrated this is sort of like in common language, it's just really not something that is familiar to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I worry that um, I really appreciate what you said about it's not your fault because I worry that the especially when we look at the styles right <laughs> any mm -hmm. label can be used to pathologize a person which is the exact opposite of what bolby was trying to say mm -hmm. I, I like yeah. that he says like a kid who's getting their needs met that's sitting there quietly is is just as functional as the kid who doesn't have connection and is you know throwing a fit and screaming mm -hmm. at the top of their lungs right <laughs> that's mm -hmm. just these are yeah. different ways of getting connection i yeah you were talking about that part of like being with God. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and that really does, uh, that speaks like I resonate with that because there are these messages that we hear from pastors that are like well-intentioned. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I think about being with, I think of, um, what some psychologists have called a yield state. And so, you know, and I think that really correlates a lot with um, with Sabbath, and mm -hmm. um, we can look mm -hmm. at that. But I know for me growing up, time with God was not a restful, you know, we're just hanging out time. It was like, get your marching orders, try to hear something from God, try to get something out of Scripture. Mm -hmm. Also, maybe mm -hmm. it's boring. Mm -hmm. um, and so I really appreciate that idea of like just being with God really is another for a lot of evangelicals is another task. It's not mm -hmm. right. It doesn't mm -hmm. compute that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So we're kind of like sort of skirting around and swimming around this, this idea of just like, what is the experience of, of people that have, insecure attachments sort of within their religious life and how are they engaging and sort of being met by uh, pastors and fellow congregants. 
And I think this is this is where we, we just need so much more research. You know, the vast majority of the research and attachment um, sort of looks at more sort of the, the individual or maybe interpersonal level. But what is going on in the community and in the organization of the congregation, you know, and there's there's like a handful of studies that deal with this. Um, you know, one of them is an interesting study that looks at it looks at well-being and it sort of is asking. We know that attachment to God is related to to well-being, more security, more well-being. But is attachment to a, a particular congregation, in other words, you know, having meaningful sort of close relationships with people in an actual church, um, is it is it do you get more security? Do you get sort of like more of a benefit in terms of well-being? And the initial results seem to say, yeah, that there's almost like an additive um, mm-hmm. sort of bonus to one's own attachment to God. Um, but beyond that, like, you know, one or two studies to deal with that, there's not much. Um, so this is why I, I looked into trying to leverage some of this larger national data to look at that. And so I, I do have one study that looks specifically at attachment and sort of congregational experiences. And I think this is probably worth spending just a little bit of time on because, yeah, I love that. you know, you know, People listening to the podcast maybe go to a church or have friends that go to a church. Maybe they work at a church. And and so I think this can be really useful. Um, so, so first of all, the thing that we have to sort of think about is that um, we, we know based on a lot of sort of parallel research that certain kinds of statuses that we possess are highly indicative of our, our experience within congregations. And I, I and I think of the the body of research on uh, multi ethnic churches, for example. Mm-hmm. That there's this there's this great desire for churches to be multi ethnic. We we realize, well, wait a minute, we don't we shouldn't we shouldn't just be doing this all as you know a bunch of white people sitting in in the room, sort of having the narrow experience of whatever white evangelicalism is. Let's let's try to bring more into the space. Um, and unfortunately. The, the research, one, shows that it's a lot harder to have a multi-ethnic congregation than it is to have more of a homogenous congregation. You know, even, even the churches that are really trying to do it hard face a lot of obstacles. Mm-hmm. And then if that weren't you know, bad enough, just in terms of reconciling theology and worship style and all kinds of things, um, that, the, that the group, and this doesn't matter what race, it, it just matters on what's the dominant racial ethnic group in a church and what are sort of the more minority racial ethnic groups in the church. Hmm. And, and there's consistent research showing that whatever the minority group is, um, that they, they just experience a much lower sense of belonging to the congregation, hmm. um, whether, it's, whether it's, you know, it's white people in a, in a black church or uh, black and a white or Latino or whatever, just whatever that smaller group is, mm-hmm. they, they experience less belonging. But we kind of, we kind of, we kind of understand that, right? If I explain that people say, yeah, yeah, okay, I, I, I can see why that would be, uh-huh. you yeah. know, so race, ethnicity is one of those statuses that we kind of understand. Okay. That would, that gender is one of those things that we kind of understand. Yeah. You know, if you're a woman and you're at a church that doesn't acknowledge your gifting, um, that's going to be a different kind of experience than if you're a man in that church. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we kind of intuitively understand age in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. The age that you're at in a congregation is going to sort of impact your experience with that congregation. 
Uh, and this all ties into, you know, what we would call social homophily, you know, that, that we tend to be drawn to people that are like us. Mm-hmm. And we, we just tend to, we tend to click with people that are more like us. And whether we're trying to or not, we tend to gravitate to people that are more like us mm-hmm. on the whole. Um, but there's a, one of the, the most important sociological studies that talks about social homophily. Interestingly, they suggest in their study um, that intrapersonal characteristics might also function and group people in ways related to social homophily in the same way that sort of externally visible things like mm-hmm. race, ethnicity, and gender, and age do. And so that's the starting point for this study is basically to say, hey, what if attachment mm-hmm. is totally under the surface? Mm-hmm. People are not People are not verbally understanding or identifying why they feel more drawn or connected to a congregation or why they might feel sort of like having a really hard time fitting in or feeling like they're marginalized around the edge. They -hmm. don't have the language, but it's because social homophily is at work, Mm -hmm. you know? So, so if I'm a person that has an insecure attachment and I go to my local, you know, sort of charismatic, intimate, you know, evangelical congregation where, and this is where we don't have the numbers, right? But let's say 80, 80% of the people there have a secure attachment to God mm-hmm. or 90% mm-hmm. because that's because that's the kind of emotional world that that church is drawing people right. into. Well, so I mean, I if we wanted that. to reference back in McDonald's study from, I, I want to say 2004, uh, they did a study of looking at denominations and they did look at a charismatic uh, church and found okay. higher levels of secure attachment. Yes. Than okay. In a um, than a, uh, the, compared to a, a reformed church, uh, which had mm-hmm. lower levels. So okay, awesome. There you yes. go. <laughs> yes, I know, and, and I was aware of that study, but it slipped my mind. So thanks for yeah, bringing yeah. that back in. Yeah. So so if I'm that person that goes into that congregation with really high levels of secure attachment, um, whether I can put my finger on it or not, I'm probably going to just be like, wow, what is going on here? How do I connect to this? Um, and there's a question of sort of like, am I going to stick? You know, is, mm-hmm. we, is, are there enough people like me in this congregation? Is there, is, there, uh, is there messaging coming from the pulpit that acknowledges that people like me are here, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that, that it's okay for me to be here and, and it's okay for, for me to realize that I can, I can seek this sort of change to sort of develop a greater security, but probably the road's going to be pretty bumpy and probably I'm going to go back and forth a lot. Um, but a lot of it um, can, can maybe get kickstarted more if we're able to identify um, what's going on with us in terms of attachment and have, you know, pastoral teams and, and congregation members that are sort of aware of those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think of, and the phrase that comes to mind is, am I the only one that feels this way? And hmm. I'm assuming that some of the folks listening have sat in a in a church, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. on a Sunday and, and being like, looking around and like, is am I the only one that feels like this isn't connecting or it's not mm-hmm. speaking to me or I'm seeing something here, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. I think about, uh, this is an example I've talked about before. Um, I remember sitting in a, uh, church one time and um, the pastor said 
you know, don't drink the Kool-Aid. Like Jesus didn't die for you. Jesus died for the church. So if you're part of the church, like then Jesus died for you. But this isn't like a personal thing. This isn't specifically about you. Hmm. (laughs) And I was thinking like, you know, theological merits aside, like this is a nuanced conversation. I'm thinking about that person that like barely was able to drag themselves to church that morning who really is dealing with self-loathing and Mm -hmm. did not need to hear like Mm -hmm. Jesus like did this thing only if you're going to be a part of the family, if you're going to be a part of the group. Right. (laughs) And, um, you know, just as, just as one example, but I think um, in fact, someone was, I think there's another piece here that is, um, would I just would be so curious about, and this is some of the research that we just, in some ways, probably can't do. Um, <laughs> but like, I think about the churches where there's that, that continual like message of like you're a wretch, you're terrible, you're there's something mm-hmm. really broken about you. Mm-hmm. Um, my wife and I about ten years ago went to a church where that was like that was the message before every communion service was like, there's mm-hmm. one pastor who would get up and remind us that we're terrible. And, <laughs> you know, on some level, it's like looking at that person, like, I don't think that per that person that gets up and says that every Sunday is internalizing it in the same way that maybe I am as like someone with insecure attachment with a trauma yes. history that mm-hmm. is dealing with mental health struggles, right? Yes, yes. And that's what I'm really curious about. Like, it would be so interesting to know, like, when these messages are said, how mm-hmm. are they heard by these different people? Yes, yes. And I think it's it's absolutely, it's got to be true that, you know, in many ways, um, the the ways that the, the lead pastor or, you know, for better or for worse, we tend to have one person that's up front the most. Mm-hmm. And the way that they connect with God is going to inevitably sort of shape the expectations of the community about sort of how that happens and what's expected. Mm-hmm. So uh, undoubtedly, you know, there are, there are going to be a small number of churches out there that are, are really a, a really safe sort of space for people that are struggling. Mm-hmm. You know? and, and, and that's, that's a narrative that they're going to hear a lot. You know, I think about, I know I think about like Anne Lamott, you know, as a writer, you know, and just (laughs) the way that she approaches faith and the way she talks about her friends and her church, you know, it's like, Mm -hmm. that feels like that kind of space, you know, I could probably go to that church and just feel right at home. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Um, But, and there's going to be, you know, some churches maybe on the other end of the spectrum that, that really drilled out of the security. And it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily bad that we have like this sort of array of churches, but probably we don't want you know, all of our churches to be sort of one or the other, Mm. you know, probably we want to have a lot of the churches somewhere in the middle that, Mm -hmm. that are aware of these dynamics and can, can be a welcoming space for people sort of regardless of what's going on with their experience of God and find that they're sort of acknowledged and seen and known. Mm -hmm. Um, They can be honest, they can be present, they can be vulnerable. And, and then hopefully growth can occur somewhere in there. Um, but I just think the more that we we understand this and the more this becomes sort of common language within the church, the easier it is to have a handle on that and and speak to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So 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 one, no surprise that sort of the more security you experience in your connection with God, the more you attend church. Mm. Um, but then what we wanted to know is not just attend church, because a lot of people 
have mixed motivations for why they attend any any given Sunday service. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe they right. do that habit. Maybe they do it because they desperately need it. Maybe they do it because they're trying to please a spouse. You know, mm-hmm. maybe they do it because they see a need that their kids need spiritual instruction, and so they're taking their kids. So there's a lot of mixed motivations there. But yeah. what we do in this study that's unique is that the Baylor Religion Survey included a count of all kinds of activities that are beyond the Sunday service experience. So church choirs and potlucks and prayer groups and Bible studies and those things. So we call these congregational and religious life activities. Mm -hmm. And we want to say, okay, so beyond attendance, how does attachment connect with basically enmeshment and like, you know, deep Mm -hmm. sort of connection with the life of the community, not just on Sundays, but throughout the week. And what we found interestingly is we, we looked at the association and we looked at it by how long people had been attending their current place of worship. Hmm. And so people that had been attending at a church for a year or less, regardless of their attachment orientation, they participated in about the same number hmm. of these sort of extra sort of extracurricular things in church life. Hmm. But the longer people reported being members of their church and participating, the more the attachment came into play. So the mm-hmm. people that have this security of attachment, their participation in these kinds of things goes up and up and up and up and up over time. But people that have you know anxiety and avoidance going on, their participation in these things goes down and down and down and down and down over time. Uh, and and you could ask a, a lot of questions about why that occurs, uh-huh. um, which the, which the paper is not able to answer, you know, directly, we can theorize a little bit. And certainly I'm sure, you know, people highly invested in church and pastors all, you know, hear that and they're already, their minds start spinning about, okay, what's that about? Why is that going on? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's important to know that, that there's strong data to show that that pattern does occur. Mm-hmm. And, and we're that, looking at- yeah, I was going to say that, and that's looking at attachment to God or is that attachment looking- to God? Yes. That's not adult yeah. attachment. That's attachment to mm-hmm. God. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. So this this question on um, switching, you know, one one of the big questions that sociologists are always looking at, sociologists of religion, is sort of like, you know, how religious is a society? What is driving church membership, church participation? And, you know, so one of the ongoing narratives is essentially – general patterns of decline in mainline Protestant churches, sort of their, their market share for lack of (laughs) better words is, is sort of going down as sort of a percentage of the population and evangelicalism, even though it has, it has dropped off a little bit from sort of a heyday, you know, 20 years ago, maybe it, it tends to hold fairly steady, um, kind of in the 23, 24, 25%, of the adult population in the United States. Hmm. And there's a lot of, you know, wringing of hands and, you know, questions about, you know, what's going on here? How do we explain this? And you could, you, you, you can propose solutions like uh, the evangelicals have sort of stronger boundary markers of sort of what, what counts as an insider versus an outsider. Hmm. And if you have stronger boundaries then the people that are inside tend to feel sort of more of a a stronger sense of identity there's a little bit more of it there's a little bit more of an opposition to the broader culture you know the the sociologists 
Chris Smith has written a lot about this. That Yeah, I was that, thinking about Divided by Faith, right? Yeah. Well, Divided by Faith deals with some of this, but the book um, Evangelicalism Embattled and Thriving like, is really where the mm-hmm. argument really gets laid out, that, that there's this notion of sort of cultural struggle, and that cultural struggle um, provides motivation mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and a sustenance of belief. Mm-hmm. And not just in religion. There's a, there's a well-known book. Um, that I, I'm not going to get the title exactly right, but it's basically war. Um, you know, is, is a force that gives us meaning. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that we as as human creatures, we seem to thrive off of struggle, and struggle mm-hmm. tends to make us feel alive, and it tends to make us feel like we have a group that we belong to. We know who's in and we know who's out and mm-hmm. those kinds of things just sort of bolster our identity, right? Yeah. So some people would argue that that evangelicalism does a little bit more in terms of the embattlement and the boundary. Yeah. So, you know, I, I just started thinking, what, what if attachment has something to do with this? And what if, what if basically over time, people tend to kind of sort themselves by their attachment orientation and style. Um, whereas, you know, if I'm, if I'm growing up evangelical and I've got a secure attachment to God, I'm very likely to probably persist in the evangelical tradition as an adult. But if I grew up evangelical and I have sort of an anxious avoidant attachment to God, and I'm finding that once I'm out on my own college and post-college, that that emotional sort of experience is just not resonating with me. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm likely to start looking sort of elsewhere to, mm-hmm. to find, is there a church tradition that, that I feel just, for lack of better words, like more at home in? Mm-hmm. Um, where I, when, I, when I go in, I don't have to negotiate a ton of sort of emotional stuff that's going on with me and that I don't have to sort of feel like I'm climbing over a wall to get in. Mm. And, you know, anecdotally in my own life, and, and I would say in a number of my, my peers, as I've, as I've grown up with people um, coming up through the evangelical ranks, um, I, I've seen that occur a lot, you know, in people's mm. lives. Um, but what about the other way around? You know, remember that the proportion of you know literalists, um, the proportion of, you know in the end of people that sort of are reporting high sort of secure attachments to God in the evangelical tradition is is quite high, sort of relative to other traditions. And and so what if you know people are growing up in mainline or Catholic uh, or in some other um, group and and they're finding that in the same way their own sort of um, desire for intimacy or the desire of sort of connection to God is not quite being met in their traditions. And this is not to, this is not a, a you know, a backhanded critique of these other traditions, right? Uh-huh. There's certainly, there's certainly um, deep aspects of sort of like deep connection with God across these traditions, mm-hmm. but on the whole evangelicalism ramps it up like to another level to the, to the point where, you know, like Todd Brenneman is a a historian that wrote a book um, called um, homespun gospel, the triumph of sentimentality in contemporary American evangelicalism. And so the whole, the whole book is dealing with this rise of sort of emotion and Mm. sentimentality and what some people might even call feminization of the Mm. evangelical church um, that it's just, it's a, it's a home for like an emotional milieu, you know, where mm-hmm. um, he, he talks about, um, 
um, he says, evangelicals have come to trust that emotion is the key to a relationship with God. And most evangelicals have abandoned the life of the mind in favor of a religious life of emotion. Mm-hmm. And that certainly lines up with, with, with Noel's critique of mm-hmm. the evangelical mind. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so no, in short, is yeah. <laughs> what what happens if what hap- if the bulk of the the population are secure in their orientation, right? And that's what mm-hmm. the numbers are. What 60 percent or so? Mm-hmm. Um, is it possible that a lot of the switching that's going on is is people trying to live into that secure orientation that they have? And right. Ryan Ryan Burge is a is a researcher that looks at this kind of stuff. And in on recent data from the General Social Survey. Um, he, he finds that 55% of people that are raised mainline Protestant um, stay, but it's 70% of evangelicals that stay. Mm. And, and he reports that it's twice as likely for a mainline Protestant to become an evangelical than for an evangelical to leave and become a mainline Protestant. Mm. So there's definitely a, a greater movement towards evangelicalism, mm. which may be one of the things that helps evangelicalism keep it staying power mm-hmm. is that it, it's it's drawing in and, and capitalizing off of this emotional world that people find so appealing mm-hmm. yeah no that makes a lot of sense yeah well thank you so much for for the preparation you put into this um it's just really fun to to hear about these studies and i've i just personally you know i'm releasing a book in three weeks uh and uh, so it's just been like editing and and how do I make this, you know, kind of understandable for the general population. But um, talking today was like, oh, it was just it was so much fun early on. And I continue to try to keep up. But like, you know, reading these studies and like, oh, like other people have been asking these same questions. There's obviously mm-hmm. still a lot out there, but I really appreciate you. Um, yeah. Helping fill in some of the gaps and also kind of theorize, like, where do we go next? Absolutely. Yeah, it's been so fun to be on. And, and as a sociologist, you know, I'm always just working on these like big data sets. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and so I don't I don't get chances as often as I'd like to interact with people that are, you know, putting these things into into practice with with their work and uh, with clients and in, in therapy. Um, so it's been so great to sort of learn from you uh, over the last few months as I've been listening in on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much. All right. Thanks so much, Crispin. This is an Area Code podcast.